Hi, welcome to the June 19th Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. This evening I'll tell you about my trip to Miami, Florida and play excerpts from Patrick Kennedy's presentation at the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance Conference. That's right, JFK's nephew, the son of Ted Kennedy. We also have, it, have Kevin Kerr from the current production of You Are Very Star at the H.R. McMillan Space Center, and Jen Kobach will fill us in on the Summer Sparkle Dance Party, a fabulous fundraiser for the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center. Hi, I'm your host for this evening, Sarah Lapsley. I've been away for the last week in Miami, Florida, and I'm excited to tell you a bit about that. I have I say, if you haven't returned like sunburnt, hoarse, exhausted, sick with the tropical flu, and dead broke, then you haven't done Miami right, and I did it right. So please bear with me. I'm a bit croaky, contagious, and sniffly, um, so I'll just do my best for you. I went down to Miami to attend the annual network meeting of my research team, Crest BD. So that stands for the Collaborative Research Team to Study Psychosocial Issues in Bipolar Disorder. Um, so we're a multidisciplinary team based out of the psychiatry department here at UBC. So what is bipolar disorder? Um, most people have heard of it, but it's, it's a brain disease that occurs in 1% to 2% of the population. It's considered highly genetic, and it presents as a, a various combination of mood kind of swings. So can be very dark, deep depressions, can be these very elevated, euphoric, maniacal kind of states and sometimes presents as a mixed state uh, where you're kind of agitated in a maniacal way with depression so it's episodic and like historically it's been considered serious and progressive although that's changing as we become aware that many high functioning people live well with bipolar disorder as long as they kind of adhere to a balanced lifestyle and take medication so people like Catherine Zeta-Jones has been very open about living with bipolar disorder. Stephen Fry, the British comedian, Pete Townsend, Sting are just like a few of the many celebrities. It does seem to uh, confer a certain um, ability or ambition, sometimes they call it, like the genius disease. Uh, it's correlated with quite a bit of creativity. Uh, but there's also a lot of mental distress that comes with it. So high suicide rates, very high comorbid addiction, and often cardiovascular issues. Um, so I have bipolar disorder. I'm very open about it, and I'm open about it because I like to raise awareness and combat stigma. So my involvement in the research team here at UBC has had a big impact on my life for the good um, because I've had exposure to a positive message and the opportunity to work directly with some of the top researchers in the world in the area of bipolar disorder. So we met for a couple of days at this beautiful hotel in Coconut Grove, which is a suburb of Miami. And then we headed down to South Beach for a few days to attend the International Society of Bipolar Disorders Conference, which is sort of a biomedical conference, largely looking at topics related to genetics, epidemiology, and neuroscience. Fun. Um, but we like to do research, but we also like to have fun. So Miami is amazing. Uh, have you ever been there? You should go. So how to describe it? It's tropical, very clean American city. It has its own culture, a huge Latin influence, very glamorous, lots of money. It has its own fashion. Like people love to wear skimpy outfits. The skimpier, the better. Over the top, kind of glam, high heels. People love to wear sparkly, blingy things. Um, really bright colors are sort of 
what people love to wear, moo-moos, anything tropical. Um, people love music, amazing food. We, we ate a lot of ceviche, tropical fruits, mojitos. So if you think like Miami Vice, Versace, fast living, there's a huge modern art scene. Uh, the Art Deco Mile on South Beach is like this stretch of 850 restored Art Deco buildings. And new buildings they build in the style of Art Deco. Um, places like Coconut Grove or Coral Gables have more of an artsy feel, like little cottages surrounded by manicured kind of jungly plants. Um, South Beach is where we traditionally think of Miami. All the hotels along the beach, white sand. The water changes, of course, but it's really clear and beautiful and clean. Turquoise and deep blue, warm. You can see out to Cuba. Um, so everything about Miami is sort of light and bright. And at times I pick up this sort of very ancient, like Greek or Atlantis vibe. Definitely good vibes in Miami. Um, once I get a job and graduate from UBC... I plan to return every year for a holiday like a snowbird. So it's insanely... I'm on the air, Dan. Bye. That's Dan from his show. I can't remember the name. DJ Shakespeare. He plays oldies. Anyways, um, we spent a lot on restaurants, but we had fabulous dinners out every night. So the conference, the ISBD conference, uh, is geared mostly to psychiatrists and highly paid sort of academic researchers. It was $900 to attend. As a student, I got a discount, but it's a very expensive conference, and there wasn't a crumb of food. I'm lodging a complaint here publicly. Um, like, that's the best thing about conferences, um, is, like, having food and snacks, and this is the only conference I've ever been to that, where there was nothing. But good presentations, um, although they weren't that applicable to my area of study, I could usually follow along, um, and there were some real luminaries there, such as Dr. Guy Goodwin, from Oxford University and Dr. Eric Youngstrom from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, who did a great presentation on pediatric bipolar disorder. Uh, went to an interesting one on the topic of love and mania. So people who are manic often fall in love very deeply or these sort of heady affairs. So that when they're not well, the usual excitement of attraction is magnified like a hundred times and they can get themselves into real trouble. So it sounds like an exciting presentation, but the professor who delivered it was so dull. Like, she read in a monotone directly off her sheet of paper. So this proves my point uh, that you can make a boring topic interesting or an interesting topic boring, depending on your speaking skills. So overall, it was kind of a straight-laced bunch. And their idea of creativity was to weave, like, Star Trek quotes into their presentations. Um, however, one of the highlights was a keynote talk by Dr. Kate Jameson. She wrote a famous book called The Unquiet Mind about her experience living with bipolar disorder. So despite these kind of wild mood swings she had, she went and got her doctorate in clinical psychology at UCLA uh, and then went on to become like the foremost researcher in the area. So she's won numerous awards and published a lot been named one of the best doctors in the United States, quote-unquote, and was chosen by Time magazine as a hero of medicine. Um, so she, in recent years, has sort of moved away from, like, scientific research to a blossoming interest in English literature. And she wrote an interesting book called Touched by Fire, Manic Depressive Illness and the Artistic Temperament, which examines the relationship between bipolar disorder and artistic creativity. So it contains a number of case histories of famous people, um, like Lord Byron, who are described as probably having suffered from bipolar disorder. 
So her talk at the conference was based on the content of a new book she is writing about the American laureate poet Robert Lowell. Um, and he suffered a very, very serious case of BD. So he, he was a brilliant poet, multiple hospitalizations, what they call a Boston Brahmin, so like could trace his ancestors back to the Mayflower. Um, and he wrote to one of his women friends, of which he had many, uh, to pray that this knot inside me will become unsnarled. So I thought I'd read just a brief selection of one of his poems. And I don't get too excited about poetry, but uh, I really like his poetry. So this one is called Waking in the Blue, and it's about um, his one of his stays in a psychiatric hospital. As your day makes my agonized blue window bleaker, crows maunder on the petrified fairway. Absence, my heart grows tense, as though a harpoon were sparring for the kill. This is the house for the mentally ill. After a hearty New England breakfast, I weigh 200 pounds this morning. Cock of the walk, I strut in my turtlenecked French sailor's jersey before the metal shaving mirrors and see the shaky future grow familiar in the pinched indigenous faces of these thoroughbred mental cases. Twice my age and half my weight, we are all old-timers. Each of us holds a locked razor. Thank you. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, it was a great thrill to see Kay Redfield Jameson, who gave the presentation about Robert Lowell. And people were a bit critical, like, she's abandoned science but I think you know she's already made her scientific contributions and her heart clearly lies in the arts and there is a slowness and a melancholy about her um you know and and so you can tell she still struggles with bipolar disorder now to my favorite part I want to give you a bit of context simultaneously to the biomedical International Society of Bipolar's Disorder Conference it was the annual conference of the depression and bipolar support alliance at a different hotel um and so this is a self-help group a big self-help group in the u.s um and they it's organized by and for people with mental health issues and they call themselves consumers um so the consumers are known under various names so service service users so consumers of mental health services or service users, um, sometimes known as the Psychiatric Survivors Movement. So this is a movement that has emerged in the last 30 years of patients that have sort of begun to advocate for better mental health care and fight for their rights as people with mental illness. And they provide sort of a counterpoint to traditional psychiatry, which has an egregious history of institutionalization, sterilization, and dehumanizing of mental patients. So obviously things have changed quite a lot, um, but there are still strong differences between these two groups. So the psychiatrists are still trained largely as experts and to restore norm normalcy in their patients as long as they do these things like take medication. Um, they're often privileged and sometimes removed from the life experience of their patients. Uh, consumers, on the other hand, tend to be highly suspicious of mental health practitioners, sometimes to their own detriment. Um, so... There's a move to make medical care more patient-centered, and in that spirit, we had the two conferences converge for a day of programming. So the very straight-laced psychiatrists and then a convergence of mental health consumers who subscribe to a kind of mad pride. Like if they want to do cartwheels in the conference lo hotel lobby, that's cool. Um, you know, wear crazy clothes. Um, so I had... I really enjoyed them, and uh, I identify as one of them, and I had a privilege of meeting a number of fantastic people from the di 
Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance, including Blake Levine, who is a person with bipolar who has a private practice um, for people with bipolar disorder. And he's like, I chatted with him and he told me some of this stuff, but then I looked him up on Wikipedia. Um, And so before he became a therapist as a child, he was featured on Entertainment Tonight, Maury Povich, The Jon Stewart Show, CNN, and many other shows um, about his experiences collecting autographs from celebrities, which he would sell. Um, And those included Princess Diana, Mother Teresa, Brad Pitt. And he also talked to me about Gene Simmons. He got um, autographs from him and Paul Stanley. And so he's quite a character. And he actually proposed to his wife on Dr. Phil. So that was nice to meet him. He wrote a book called Beating Bipolar. Um, But the highlight of the joint day was Patrick Kennedy, Ted Kennedy's son, So he was born on July 14th, 1967. He's the former U.S. representative for Rhode Island's first congressional district, and he served as a congressman from 1995 until 2011. So seeing him speak was like a thrill beyond belief. So I'm just going to gush, bear with me. Um, After his talk, people were like, "Eh," like he's a politico. And I'm like, what? He's a Kennedy, like this historical figure. He totally, I called it the, the Kennedy phenotype, which means like the physical expression of the genes. So bright white smile, tall, chiseled features, sort of sandy colored hair, gorgeous. Um, And he seems to fit the family profile like he's had a lot of difficulties in his life. He grew up with two alcoholic parents, so Ted Kennedy. um, And his mother, Virginia Joan Bennett, was a notorious alcoholic. Uh, She's still alive. And he was the youngest of three children. His older brother, Ted Jr., lost a leg to cancer when he was 13 years old. And Patrick's sister, Kara, died a couple of years ago in her early 50s. She had lung cancer and then a fatal heart attack. So Patrick uh, also had a cancerous tumor removed from his spine at one point. He had severe asthma as a child. He was on an iron lung a lot. Now, thankfully, we don't know what that is anymore, but it's a huge metal tank you have to lie in, and it sort of breathes for you. Um, He was described as unstable from about 18. He struggled with cocaine, Oxycontin, and alcohol dependency. Um, And he really continued to struggle with these things uh, until he had a car crash in Washington. um, And and that kind of got him on the straight and narrow. But he still didn't quite deal with it till about two years ago um, when he got sober. And so then he kind of like pulled out of political life. And now he raises money for neuroscience research and advocates for laws um, that, you know, that make mental health a priority. Now, thank your lucky stars that you live in Canada and healthcare is free because I got a sense of the struggle it is to get coverage for mental health issues in the States. Um, and so a lot of what he talked about in his speech didn't really apply because it was about uh, fighting for coverage for mental health. But he gave a great talk and I taped bits of it on my phone and I want to play some for you just like so that you get a sense of what he's like. And so here's sort of a little bit of an intro talk uh, that he gave. And so uh, hopefully you'll like it. Here he is, Patrick Kennedy, son of Ted Kennedy and nephew of JFK at the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance.
was Patrick Kennedy at the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. So I was totally blown away by his talk. Um, like he was so nervous just before he we went on. And I had read that about him, that he's very nervous. And he just looked like he might throw up. And then he got up there and he just like blew everyone away. And I kind of had this peak experience listening to him. Um, so much power in his voice and like so American, like you really felt like you were watching this historical person. Um, and the beauty of what he did really was to identify with the underdog, so the mental health consumers. And in doing so, he really shifted the power imbalance in the room. And so I really, you know, as someone with bipolar disorder, I think he's truly a hero to speak out about the stigma of mental illness and addiction. Um, and he's taking a big risk in doing so politically. So here's a little bit more um, from him. And he's talking about, he opens talking about Jared Lochner, who's the guy that um, shot a congresswoman. I can't remember her name, um, but he's op like opens up talking about him and how we need to get people help earlier. That was Patrick Kennedy, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. Um, so, yeah, he just was amazing, and he said a lot of sort of notable things, like, you know, we're all children of God, and we each have a spark of divinity, and to deny the God in each other is to not de deny the dignity of others, um, and salvation comes in rising above our own individual interests and addressing the suffering of others. So that's a beautiful message. And another thing he said was, we all need love and intimacy or we will perish. And when he said it, he looked right at me. I was in the front and held my gaze for like four long Mississippi seconds. as the most action I've gotten in 2013 or 2012. And after you've had an erotic moment, however brief or imaginary, with a Kennedy, there's no going back. Top that. Anyways, um, he, you know, since I've gotten home, I've been reading voraciously about the Kennedy family. There's so much to learn. Um, and I got this bio of Ted Kennedy from the library, and it's awful. I mean, it's by this guy, Burton Hirsch, and it's, it's, it's the most florid thing maybe I've ever read. And I'll just, I just wanted to read you this paragraph because it's, it's 
this is what the book is like, so don't get it. There's other better Kennedy books out there. Um, here's a quote from the book on Edward Kennedy. Just as a medieval nobleman might drop off his horse at the sight of some lively peasant girl's well-turned haunch among the shar- harvest sheaves and refresh his loins beneath the noonday sun, so Kennedy had few inhibitions about declaring his interests, then promptly following up. So yeah, that's, well, yuck, hate. Um, but, you know, I got reading about the JFK assassination, who did it, like, the mob for sure, because JFK's father, Joe Kennedy, did a lot of business with the mob, yet when they came to power, the sons, uh, Robert Kennedy and JFK, they, like, prosecuted the mob. So that probably had something to do with it. Now, Lyndon Johnson, I found, was sort of, like, under suspicion. Um, so that was interesting. But I guess no one knows. Many people have spent years thinking about it. So I just want to play a final clip of Patrick Kennedy. And here he's referring to JFK and JFK's message to Martin Luther King. And then he sort of ties the idea together of, like, mental health being a civil rights issue. So here he is, Patrick Kennedy.
that was Patrick Kennedy. And when he's talking about church basements there, he means people going to AA. Um, so, yeah, I just, that was amazing. And I, I'm kind of going over time with this segment, but I had to look at his astrology. Scorpio ascendant, very sexy, Cancer sun. And so Cancer is kind of a sign of the public um, and family roots. So, like the Kennedys are totally sort of Cancerian. Um, he's got Neptune in the first house. So this puts him really at high risk for the kind of um, unstable sense of self and addiction that has sort of like been present in his life. Um, sort of a redeemer or victim archetype. And people like Courtney Love and River Phoenix also have Neptune in the first house, so they've struggled with addiction. Um, Sun and Jupiter are in his ninth house, so... Um, wise statesman, politics, law, culture, teaching, philosophy. So in the past, he said he would run for president, but since then he's sort of withdrawn from politics. Is it still a possibility he could return? I think definitely. I think it depends on his health and his beliefs about his ability to handle the phenomenal stress that might come with political office. And would the American public accept a self-identified bipolar person? Maybe, maybe not. Um, so I think... Um, Patrick Kennedy can if he wants to he'd have to build his confidence on a really deep level um, and if you have doubts that a bipolar person could lead a country under stressful circumstances I ask you to think upon the late Winston Churchill um, who was Prime Minister of England in the world war everybody knows that but he was manic depressive okay I could say more, much more about Patrick Kennedy, but he's got a great website. You can check it out for yourself um, at patrickjkennedy.net. So I want to play a song because the song is kind of Miami. Um, and it's an artist that I used to really hate. Um, Cat Power, Sean Marshall. And Indie Rock guys just loved her, and that really bugged me. Like, she could just, like, scrunch up on the floor crying, and Indie Rock guys would surround her. Um, but she actually is bipolar. She actually has alcoholism, like Patrick Kennedy. And she lives in Miami. And I really love this song, and it's called Lived in Bars. So it goes out to Patrick Kennedy and everyone else with bipolar and alcohol issues. Here it is. Every living life will end your 
For the past seven years, Sled Island has delivered a hot, fresh, and saucy music and arts festival in Calgary, Alberta. In 2013, it's saucier than ever. From June 19th to 22nd, independent musical acts, visual artists, filmmakers, and comedians, including the CITR Showcase featuring White Lung, will frolic your amusement at over 30 venues. For more information on schedules, venues, ticket purchases, and more, visit www.sledisland.com. Sled Island is proudly sponsored by CITR. Know what's up at UBC? Read the UBC. It's only the largest student newspaper in Western Canada, and it's written and edited entirely by UBC students. The UBC is your source for on-campus news, culture, and sports. New editions come out every Monday and Thursday. For breaking news as well as amazing videos and blogs, check out ubc.ca. This is CITR 101.9, and I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley, trying not to be too squeaky. Now, the show is just blowing by, and I want to get back to arts events in Vancouver. So, one thing that came across my desk was the Summer Sparkle Dance Party. And it's a fundraiser for the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center, uh, which is a community resource that provides medical care to people, um, gender-diverse people. Um, and they receive no government funding, and they need your urgent support. So it's a night of hot and sweaty dance music with DJs Fagbot, Furious Green Cloud, Dance Control, and different performances by Maya Girlfriend, Trans, Apis, Rex. There's a 50-50 draw, silent auction. It's supported by Little Sisters Bookstore, Sophie's Pet Palace, the Fountainhead Pub. Um, and so... 
yeah, I just interviewed Jen Kovac from the Sparkle Party, summer dance party extravaganza, and she's going to tell us all about it. So there's a bunch of really awesome DJs that are volunteering their time to to throw down for awesome awesome party times. Um, as well, we have a few performers. There's um, two of them, Mia Girlfriend and Trana Rex, who are um, sort of drag performers, drag sort of um, genderqueer performers. So that'll be happening kind of throughout the dance party. Um, as well, we're having a silent auction um, during the party and selling 50-50 tickets. Um, so whoever wins at the end of the night splits the um, profits with Catherine went home in Wellness Center. So those are the main, yeah, those are the main things that are happening. Um, I, I was curious about the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Yeah, they. So they've. Um, they're also a nonprofit, and they sort of do a lot of volunteering and fundraising for other nonprofits and for other sort of like marginalized groups. They do a lot of work with the um, uh, the queer communities, and. They're volunteering their time. I think they're working the door. They're going to be selling 50-50 tickets and just kind of volunteering their time to show up. They have these incredible, like, really elaborate outfits. They're sort of like these drag um, uh, sort of nuns that have, yeah, just really incredible outfits. So they're kind of there to get people really hyped up, and they have a really amazing presence and sort of, um, yeah, just hopefully raising raising money for this cause, and they work on their... Um, events as well. So, sorry, this might be a dumb question. Are they real nuns? They're, um, you know, I don't know if they're real nuns. Um, well, they're, they're sisters, so I think it's, um, I think they kind of do good work, but I don't know if they're actually, like, religiously uh, involved. Um, but I think it's just the kind of premise of, of doing good work. Wow, that sounds really fun. I look forward to that. Um, so tell me about the actual charity that you're raising money for, the Catherine White Homes Wellness Center. Yeah, so it's, um, it's a really awesome uh, all-genders clinic, um, and it was renamed, I think, in the last year, the Catherine White Homes Wellness Center, and you can sort of read more about Catherine and her sort of legacy and how she um, really influenced all the, the core and founding members of this, of this clinic. Um, so it's a nonprofit. It was, I think it's been going for a couple of years now, um, started by a good friend of mine, Finn Gro. Um, they basically, they run a free clinic twice a month out of the REACH Clinic on Commercial Drive, and they provide um, like low barrier wellness services for transgendered and um, like non-conforming trans people. Um, and it's a wellness center, so they have um, like a regular clinic with uh, a few doctors and nurses, as well as massage, counseling, acupuncture, yoga. I think there's an herbalist there now. Um, and they don't get any government funding at all, so it, and it's completely volunteer run. So all the doctors and nurses and all the sort of holistic healthcare professionals just volunteer their time to run the clinic. Um, and obviously, running a clinic costs quite a lot of money, so they sort of rely on private donations and then these fundraisers to sort of um, get them the funds they need to continue doing the clinic. So what do you see sort of as some of the barriers that people, sort of gender diverse or trans people face? 
Um, I think, um, like, obviously, like, I'm not trans, but uh, a lot of friends that are close to me are, and they're, what I've heard from them from their experience is that uh, walking into a doctor's office can be really um, terrifying because a lot of doctors, unfortunately, even, you know, today, people going through med school are not trained around um, gender diverse people or um, trans issues or health concerns that trans people might have or um, even the the way that people are, are accessing um, the kind of health care they need if they need to be on hormones, if they want to have different surgeries. Um, so this, so most of the practitioners, um, some of them are trans and some of them are, are allies and they just have sort of more of a um, um, grasp around the issues that these people face and so they're able to kind of provide a better level of of health care for them. And they're, they're also, all the practitioners are really open um, to the people that access their clinic. Um, you know, they want to be kind of held accountable and also they want to get feedback from the community that they are supporting. We're back on CITR 101.9 FM. You're listening to The Arts Report. I'm your host, Sarah Lapsley, and we were just talking to Jen Kovac, who's helping to put on the Summer Sparkle Dance Party, and that's this Saturday, June 22nd at 9 p.m. at the Wise Hall, 1882 Adenac Street, and it's a fundraiser for the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center. And I just want to take a couple minutes um, to talk about the importance of raising awareness of gender issues. I took a course here at UBC, can't remember the name of my prof, but he was an amazing guy who had written a book on trans issues and introduced me just to the basics that I should have already known. Um, And it's a sensitive topic because language is so important and we want to make sure we're using the right language. Um, So this idea of the gender binary, we're men or we're women, and it's like the most basic categorization. And for people that don't fit neatly into that categorization, um, they can come up against barriers. And the other term that was new to me was cisgender. So our sex is like our physical sex, like our anatomical attributes. And gender is how we experience whether we're masculine or feminine. So for those of us who are cisgendered, it's like our anatomical bits are sort of the same as our perception. So I'm anatomically female and I identify as a female, but it's a very painful experience for those people who aren't cisgender. And I've read you know, interviews and stuff with people who talk about from a very young age feeling very clearly they don't belong in their bodies. It's like alien and foreign to them. And when they move through the process of the sex change Um, hormones and surgeries they start to feel at home they start to feel like themselves and so um, we really need to provide that medical care to them so they can come home to themselves Um, and for transgendered people so transsexual are people that actually make a full switch over uh, to a different sex and then just identify plainly with the other sex for transgendered people they defy that binary and they want to move within it Um, and not identify with either sex necessarily. So there's a large diversity among those people and how they see themselves. Um, And one of the painful things for them uh, at times can be the washroom issue. And those of us who just always know what washroom to go into um, don't have this issue. And I want to read just a little passage from Ivan E. Coyote's book, 
Now, Ivany Coyote is transgendered, though on the back of her book, she refers to herself as a her. No, not everyone wants to go with that pronoun, but um, Ivan's really great, uh, hilarious, uh, and a great writer. So this is her story. Dear Lady in the Women's Washroom. I can only surmise from our recent interaction that I startled you in the women's washroom at the mall today. I guess I don't look much like you would seem to think a female washroom user should. This is not the first time this has happened. In fact, this was not the first time this has happened to me this week. Forgive me if I was not as patient with you as you seem to feel I should have been. But I would like to point out that your high-pitched squeal startled me and I needed to urinate very badly. To ensure that the next time this happens to you, or me, that things should go more smoothly for everyone involved, I've jotted down a couple of notes for your reference. Not everyone fits easily into one of the two options provided on your standard public washroom doors. In my world, gender is a spectrum, not a binary. Just because an individual does not present as what you feel a woman should look like does not mean that they do not belong there. Public washrooms are just that, public. This means that you do not get to decide whom you share them with. I would like to remind you that everyone, regardless of your gender identity or presentation, needs to pee. For some of us, public washrooms are stressful places. We generally avoid them whenever possible. Please rest assured that if I have chosen to enter a public washroom in spite of my long and arduous history with them, that I have taken the time to carefully note which door I am about to walk into, and that I am confident I have chosen the lesser of two evils. I am, in fact, hyper-aware of which bathroom I am in. It is not necessary for you to stare at me, pointedly refer to the graphic on the door, or discuss my decision loudly with your companions. Gawking, elbowing your friend, and repeatedly clearing your throat are also not helpful. Trust me, I will be in and out as quick as humanly possible. So she speaks to, you know, the difficulty um, that people face. So it's great that there is the Catherine White Holman Wellness Center serving this community. Um, And so go out. It's going to be really fun. And I did ask a dumb question, which is about the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. Um, And are they a real, are they real nuns? Well, yes and no. Like, no, they're not real nuns, but they are in the sense that they have a togetherness um, and a philanthropic bent, um, and they deserve to be considered real nuns. So their abbey, their Vancouver chapter, is called the Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe. So they um, exist as an order of 21st century queer nuns who welcome a broad spectrum of gender, sexual orientations, and religious spiritual traditions. Through humor, irreverent wit, and glamorous manifestation, we seek to transform social structures that continue to oppress the vulnerable in our society. Um, and so they, I think, started in San Francisco and now have chapters around. And they've got amazing outfits and just, like, I can't even describe it. You should check out their site. Uh, just Google Sisters, Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. But some of the sisters' names are Sister Alma Bitches, Sister Ethica Slett, Sister Mary Q. Contrary, Sister Petunia Encar- Encarnata. Um, So they're just gorgeous, and they're going to be providing a lot of fun at the event. So next, I want to talk about We Are Very Stars. And so this is a play going on at the Museum of Vancouver, and it's very cool. And I was hoping to get to it, but I got so desperately ill um, on my trip back from Miami. 
So I'm going to go to it next week and give you a review. It runs until, it's been running since June 12th, and it runs until the 29th at the H.R. McMillan Space Center. Um, and they have a, the Space Center has a whole program of cool stuff, including movies, um, like Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I'm going to go to that in August. But um, You Are Very Star is a transmedia experience. So it's like play-like, um, but it's more like interactive performance art. And it runs at 8 p.m. Tuesday to Sunday, um, and then and then a 2 p.m. matinee on Sunday. So you can check the website for more details. Um, but it says it's pushing at the boundaries of where theater exists. And Your Very Star is encountered online through social media as a site-specific treasure hunt and as live theater inside Vancouver's beloved planetarium. So I talked to Kevin Kerr, really great guy, um, and he is the writer of some of the content of the play. And so here he is talking about You Are Very Star. Well, it's um, what we were interested in exploring, kind of the pushing out the edges of where the theater exists or takes place in terms of our experience. So the, the journey of the play itself uh, begins um, before you get to the theater as an online prologue that the uh, audience is invited to uh, access um, uh, on the website, and it sort of gets um, sort of starts seeding some of the ideas in the piece in in a, a little introductory sort of journey and an interactive sort of um, you know, survey or questionnaire where you uh, ask or are asked to answer a bunch of kind of questions about yourself uh, um, with uh, multiple choice answers that are totally a uh, associative and non-logical and um, don't have any particular um, um, direct or easy answer. So you start to just uh, think about um, the questions in a slightly different way. And then if you choose to, you can start to engage with um, um, the play in another ask, another way before getting there with, through social media and text messaging. Um, so um, elements of the play and the character within it start to kind of emerge from from that experience, and you can follow that uh, for as long as you wish until you arrive. And then uh, the play itself, or the, the performance um, at the Space Center, has kind of a three-part journey. There's a uh, first act, which is at 1968, that's the year the Space Center was built, and um, and um, and then there's a in the, where would be normally an intermission that we have this. Um, Kind of interactive interlude experience, which is kind of like a little um, scavenger hunt inside the space center. You have a map that you are given, and um, you follow a little path and discover these um, little installations or little uh, stations that have uh, usually some sort of uh, interactive component. And again, carry forward ideas about our relationship to time or between technology and and um, continue to feed little hints about the characters that are uh, present um, in the story. And then, um, and then the third part is uh, the final act, which is set in the future in 2048. And, um, and that's, uh, uh, again, back in the, that's up in the Star Theater in the Planetarium. And, um, and that's uh, where the piece resolves. So, yeah, there's lots of different ways in which you're kind of engaged in the pieces you're going through. And, um, 
you know, it takes place on a few different platforms. So what do you hope people will take away from the whole experience? Well, one of the things I really love about theater is it's, um, and this piece is about, is a bit about our relationship to time and a bit about how we um, uh, negotiate, I guess, memory and um, anticipation um, or nostalgia and fantasy or regret and dread as we're trying to kind of make our way through our ever-changing present moment. And, um, and so... Um, and what I love about about live performance is that it really is um, it kind of celebrates the fact that everything we're doing is kind of once in a lifetime. Theater always changes on a nightly basis, and um, depending on the performance you're seeing, the audience you're seeing it with, and um, as well as your kind of place within it. Um, even the most traditional straight up play in the most traditional straight up venue. Um, is quite different in terms of perspective, you know, compared to going to see a movie where the frame of the movie is always determined by the director and the, the camera um, kind of points you at the story you're watching. In theater, you're allowed to let your, your gaze wander all over the stage, and it probably will wander in a different way depending on if you're in the front row or the back row or way house left or way house right. And I love the fact that theater shifts very much and uh, really uh, becomes a very individualized experience and um, kind of celebrates the way that we are part of the creation of the show as the audience. We help kind of finish the story by, by being there and kind of drawing the final lines uh, between the dots that are put out by the, by the story and the artists. And so this piece takes that, I think, kind of to another, another step and, um, and really puts a lot of the power in the audience's hands in terms of the way they're going to assemble the final image or picture in their mind as to what it is. But most, mostly, I think of it as a piece about um, uh, the, our, the way we, the way we um, um, think about our place in time and, and how that shifts our response to kind of the, uh, the, the, the way we kind of build our reality as we, as we uh, go moment by moment. By moment. Get your early bird passes for the Vancouver Folk Music Festival until June 11th. Step outside normal society with Steve Earle and the Dukes, Dvachka and Vancouver's own Hannah Georges. The Vancouver Folk Music Festival, July 19th to 21st at Jericho Beach Park. More information at thefestival.bc.ca. The Vancouver Folk Fest is proudly sponsored by CITR 101.9. For a taste of the classics with a twist, join me, Marguerite, with Classical Chaos, Sunday mornings starting at 9, right here on CITR 101.9 FM, Vancouver, Canada. Hi, we're back. This is Sarah Lapsley on CITR 101.9 FM, and that was a bit of my interview with Kevin Kerr about the play You Are Very Star at the Macmillan Space Center, running until June 29th. Um, So you can check out the website. I'm going to go before the next show, and then I can tell you all about it. So I'm very excited, Um, and I have a bit more of his interview that I might play as well. Um, So I... 
went last night to the Chan Center Media Preview, and it was really nice. I was able to clear a big space around myself by announcing how sick I was, but no, I'm just kidding. Um, they had people there talking about the upcoming 2013-2014 season, um, and they had beautiful hors d'oeuvres and free drinks for everybody. Um, and it's a great space. And I ran into a very old friend, David Lester, from Mechanormal. And his wife is a program director, works at Chan Center. So the Chan Center is an amazing space. And you can actually rent the space uh, for your own events if I'm sure they're very expensive. Um, but David Lester and his partner, Gene Smith, and Mechanormal have been doing great music and art for like 30 years. And I think their definition of success really is that they get to still do what they love to do, which is travel around, play music, meet people. Um, and they both do painting, graphic art, and writing. So it was really nice to connect with him. And I also saw uh, Marguerite, who's the host of Classical Chaos. So it was, I'm glad I went. Um, and maybe I'll just fill you in, you know, down the road as these events come up, because it won't be for a while that there's stuff happening at the Chan. I think the first thing is in October, the Cronus Quartet. Uh, with Philip Glass will be there and his Kronos Quartet. And Winston Mar Winston Marsalis is coming as well. Um, but anyways, I just, wow, it's time to leave. I'm sorry, I just kind of talked and talked and talked. Um, I wanted to leave with a couple of cool songs. Um, the first one I'm going to play is Superchunk because Superchunk are playing at the Sled Island Festival, which is happening starting tomorrow, I guess. And CITR, I believe, is one of the sponsors. And so it looks like a lot of great bands and super chunk. You'll have to look up when they're playing or where they're playing on the schedule. Um, I'm not going to do that work for you. Just kidding. Um, but this is one of their songs. To bring it back to the bipolar theme of early in the show, this is their song, Hyper Enough. And I should say goodbye first. And say thank you for tuning in, bearing with me. I'll be back next week. So I missed, you know, two weeks. So now I'm going to take next week as well. I'm going to the Jesse Award nomination um, celebration. And so I'll talk about that. We've got some arts reporters, yay, who are going to cover the UBC opera production of Carmen. So follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We try to post there as often as we can. And so join us again next week on June 26th. So have a lovely evening. Here's Super Chunk with Hyper Enough. And after that, I'm going to play Spaceman 3 and their song, Take Me to the Other Side. So good night.